to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Welcome to the Well Church Sermons. I want to frame our time by looking at this passage, passage in 1 Corinthians 9 that I think will help us. But before we get there, uh, here, here's the reason I want to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we look at that here in just a moment. Um, every week, uh, one of the things you've noticed as you've started coming to our church is we, we talk about just a, a few things all of the time, right? And so those things we talk a, a lot is about uh, renewal and revival. That's language that we use quite a bit in which we're talking about. We want to see renewal in individual lives realigned with the purposes and presence of God that would spill over into people in our community, in our neighborhood, in our workspaces that would lead to corporate revival where the Spirit of God would just do a massive uh, move where people come to faith where this community that is kind of uh, drenched in spiritual um, deadness would come alive by the work of the Spirit. So we talk about this quite a bit. And then the other thing that we kind of uh, connect with renewal and revival and our desire to see that happen is the importance of the church, the people of God, to take seriously our missional call to be ambassadors for Christ. And that is some of the language we might use is say we want to see us leverage our spheres of influence for the good of the gospel. And so where you live, where you work, your friend groups, your family, those types of things. The place that God has already put you, the rhythm that you find yourself, that you would begin to see that as your ministry opportunity to express and to demonstrate the love of Christ for people so that they might come to Jesus. And so we, we talk about this quite a bit as a church, and it feels really good, and it feels really spiritual, and I think for an hour on Sunday, we really do want those things. But here's my concern. As we're talking about revival, as we're talking about an inbreaking of the Holy Spirit, as we're talking about seeing people come to Christ and being ambassadors and leveraging our spheres of influence, I worry that many of us, because I know my own heart, many of us are unwilling to make even the most minimal sacrifice in our life to attain the things we talk a lot about attaining. And so here's what I want us to do. I just want us to listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 I actually got to turn. I didn't even turn there yet. First uh, uh, Corinthians nine, chapter, uh, excuse me, uh, verse nineteen through twenty-three. Here's what he says. Listen to this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law. I became as one under the law, though not be myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it for all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So do you hear this guy? Do you hear the Apostle Paul? Though I am free from everything. Though I am free from all. I have freedom in Christ. 
I can run free because of Jesus. But what he's saying is in Christ, though I have complete freedom, which means I don't, know, I don't owe anyone anything, I am not owned by anyone but Jesus, yet because I belong to Jesus, I'm making myself a servant to all. Why? In order that I might win more of them. So notice what he does. There's this mission strategy. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To win those who are under the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. He says, I become all things to all people. And what Paul's not doing, he's not saying that he's pretending to be someone he's not, right? He's not doing some weird, like, shapeshifter identity thing so he can, like, like, you know those people who, like, go into a conversation and have no idea what it's happening and then, like, pretend to know everything going on and the people in the conversation are going, you have no idea what we're talking about, right? That's not what he's doing. Paul is saying... That he is willing to lay down his rights. He is willing to submit himself to certain laws. He is willing to give up his power, his freedoms, his ability to do certain things that Christ has freedom to do or not do for the sake of removing any sort of barrier from people so that the only offense that might keep them from the gospel is the gospel. That the only stumbling block that would keep them from Christ would be the rock of offense, Jesus himself, the cornerstone. And Paul actually does this for people who are already Christians, by the way, like for the sake of strengthening them in unity. Listen to what he says in chapter 8, verse 13. He says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest it makes my brother stumble. Like, do you hear this? This dude was willing to go vegan for the sake of his brother. That's incredible. Now, why on earth would Paul do any of this? Why would Paul exchange freedom for submission? Why would he exchange the ability to, to live however he wanted? Now, I'm not saying that he was free to disobey Jesus. He was free to believe whatever he wanted. I'm not saying that we have the freedom to just kind of twist things and manipulate things to make us feel. We need to hold fast to the truth of the gospel and obedience to Jesus. But there are these other things that don't really have any moral import in them that we are free to enjoy or not enjoy, whatever it might be. Why would Paul give those things up for a life of service to others? Why would he exchange, for instance, the ability to eat meat for giving it up, not for health reasons, but because he doesn't want his brother who used to be wrapped up in cult idol worship to stumble. Why would he do that? Well, here, here's, I think, a reason why. Paul was convinced that Jesus was far superior than anything else in life. You can give up anything, Paul would say, because you have been given everything in Jesus. And so to say it this way, Paul was consistently blown away by the gospel. If you remember his story of conversion, he was a rebel uh, towards God and towards Jesus. And he is through his ministry now remembering that moment where Christ invaded into his life. And he just can't get over it. He's blown away. He was still in awe of the reality that Jesus, the Jesus who he was actively opposing, whose church he was persecuting, the Jesus that he hated and wanted to destroy, this Jesus who could have condemned Paul because of his sinfulness in instead saved Paul and welcomed him into the family of God, which means that Paul went from deserving the full wrath of God 
to being the recipient of what he says in Ephesians chapter 1 of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this wasn't because Paul decided to go team God all of a sudden, right? We have this mindset that like maybe Paul just wanted to clean up his life and get on the right track. No, 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 that's not what happened. It was because Jesus came and got him. It's because Jesus invaded, Jesus intervened into his life. Like how wild is this church? Because of Jesus' intervening in Paul's life, he went from an enemy of God to a recipient of every spiritual blessing and to receiving the riches of God's grace and to having his love lavished upon him and he didn't even please. Incredible. God delighted in drawing Paul to himself despite his ugly self-righteousness and his overt rebellion. And in that, the love of God overpowered the sinfulness of Paul by the blood of of Jesus. Listen, the gospel is the good news that what God demands of us, he has provided for us in Jesus. And so here's the reason I'm just harping on this right now, just to be honest with you. There's some of us who would say, yes, we're Christians. We've been Christians for a while. We do the church thing. We're constantly in there. That's great. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. I think we get into this mindset as church people to harp on church people. It's like, well, we kind of are church people. But for many of us, the gospel has become this junk drawer word. It doesn't really stir our affections anymore. We've forgotten the depths of our sin, and we've forgotten the lavish love of God that he pours out on us. And so the gospel, this news, this front page news of what God has done through Christ to make us his children has just become, huh? And so what I'm hoping happens for you, church, those of you who would say, I'm a Christian, is that this would stir your affections for Jesus as you would see the depths of his grace and his love for you. And for those of you who are in the room searching for truth, here's what what I'm hoping for you. If you don't know Christ, that you wouldn't see the gospel, which is so popularly uh, um, talked about in this part of the world, you wouldn't see the gospel as like a way to get to God, like advice for how to live. You would actually see the gospel as incredible news of what God has done to bring you blessing and salvation and hope and a family, and joy, and eternity, and abundant life. This is remarkable news that Paul gave his life to telling others about. And for this reason, Paul was willing to use his freedoms for the sake of others. So we have that context. I want us to jump back over to Acts chapter 16. We're just going to look at the first few verses of Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord reads this way. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page right now, because some of you have just joined us, and so you haven't been with us through our journey through the book of Acts. We just looked at Acts 15 the last month, and some of you have forgotten about what we've talked about because you've slept and you have things going on, right? So I want to make sure we're on the same page. 
in the beginning of chapter 15, Jewish Pharisees came around and were teaching non-Jewish new converts that to really be saved, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to be circumcised. And this was troubling their minds. They thought, oh, I thought it was just receiving Jesus and trusting Jesus, but now you're saying I have, to, I have to like change my ethnicity. I have to become Jewish. I have to be circumcised. And the apostle Paul caught wind of this, and he's like, no way, not on my watch. Not happening. That's an affront to the gospel. That's not where justification is found. It's found in Christ alone, not in adding things to the work of Jesus. And so Paul begins to fiercely debate them on this matter. He says there was no small dissension, which is the Bible's way of saying this thing got pretty wild, right? Like this got wild. It's like one of those hot-button topics that Paul just could not help himself. he got to go in on this one. Have you ever been on Facebook, right? Some of you are like, I gave up Facebook years ago. It's the best decision I've ever made in my life. Uh, some of you are on it right now. Uh, <laughs> have you ever been on Facebook and there's that moment where you see people just like wilding out on stuff. They're writing some of the craziest opinions and you think, I've got to fix this person right now. And then you, you're really tempted to like go in on it, but you're like, no, 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 that's probably not for the best. But then there's that one guy, right, who says that one thing, and you're like, someone's getting rebuked today, right? You're like, you cannot help it. You have to go in on that, right? This is that one thing. This is, what, this is the one thing for Paul. He had a lot of things, actually. But in this context, this is one of those things for Paul where he was like, someone has got to get straightened out on this. It would be like you going to a Star Wars convention and saying, Jar Jar Binks is actually a decent character. That's not going to go well, Right? They're going to come in on you and say, we need to do an intervention on this poor soul. So Paul goes in on these guys. For those of you wondering, yes, I have watched Star Wars before. I know all about it. It's the same story, every single movie. But anyways, Paul goes in on these guys. I just lost half of our church. They're like, you done done it, bruh. He goes in on these guys and he wins the debate and the Jewish Christians make a statement saying that it is not necessary for non-Jewish Christians to be circumcised. Now fast forward. There's the big thing, the big debate, got to be circumcised. No, actually you don't. It's not what we're going to have people to do. Fast forward to Acts chapter 16. Paul meets Timothy. And I kind of like to think the conversation went something like, Timothy, I've heard great things about you. You're a man of God, well thought of. I'd love to invite you to be on my uh, church planning core team. What do you think about that? And Timothy goes, oh my goodness, that sounds, what, an, what a great opportunity for me. I would love to be a part of that. What is it, what, what, what do you need from me? And Paul says, well, you're actually never going to believe this. You heard of the debates that we just had, right? And Timothy's like, oh yeah, I heard all about that. You straighten those guys out. No more circumcision, right? And Paul goes, well, I'm going to need you to get circumcised, right? And Timothy's like, you got to be, you can't be serious about this, right? There's like this moment where Paul goes, no circumcision necessary. Timothy, let's go get it. I can do this. I know how to do it. I've had training. I've seen a video once. I could probably fix this. Now, I feel like this goes without saying, but I just completely made that conversation up, just so you guys know. Like some of you are like, I don't, what translation is he using? What's going on? But my point is this. It feels a little wacky that Paul would fight against the requirement of circumcision just to turn around and require it of Timothy. But we need to remember Paul's mission strategy. 
His strategy is to remove anything that might stand in the way of people coming to faith in Jesus, which means he, he was willing to sacrifice his own freedoms, his own preferences, his very life for the sake of winning others. That phrase, winning others, is to compel people to faith in Jesus, that their soul might be saved. And again, he did this not just for people who didn't know Christ, but also for, as a way to strengthen people who knew Jesus. He was willing to meet them where they were at, not expect them to be somewhere else. And so with this in mind, it makes a little bit of sense that Paul would circumcise Timothy. Now add to this what was happening contextually and culturally for Timothy. We need to keep in mind that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman, but that his dad was a Greek. We see this in this, uh, in this opening uh, section of chapter 16. And that means that his dad would not have circumcised him, and the local Jews that they were trying to minister to and reach would have known that. And what's significant is there was Jewish law in that time, rabbinical law, that because Timothy's mom was Jewish and his dad was Greek, it was in their eyes a non-legal marriage. Therefore, his lineage and his heritage was that of being Jewish. And so Timothy was viewed as a Jew who had not yet been circumcised, and this was a big deal to the local Jews there. And so Paul isn't being a hypocrite when he circumcises Timothy we got to remember, he was adamant about non-Jewish people not having to become Jewish and be circumcised. You could look at this in Galatians chapter 6. He writes some pretty bold things about this. It was an affront to the gospel. But on the flip side, Jews weren't required to abandon their Jewishness in order to become Christian. And so the issue... Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, or to bring it into our context, we don't really discuss Jew-Gentile relations here uh, today. Whether you are white, black, Asian, Native American, Hispanic, whatever it is that you might be, the issue is, do you believe in Jesus? Is Jesus your treasure? Is he your only hope? Is he your identity? Is he your life? And since Paul and Timothy were doing ministry amongst Jewish people, and because they wanted to remove any impediment to seeing Jesus as Savior and Lord, as the Messiah who has come to make all things new, Paul and Timothy followed Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. To the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. And what I also find so incredible, and maybe Luke just left this out. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. But nowhere do we see Timothy protest Paul on this decision, Right? Like Paul's like, we've got to get you circumcised. Timothy's like, ah, I beg to differ, my friend. <laughs> like, that ship has sailed, right? Like, Timothy's actually on board. He gets it. He's willing to make a sacrifice for the sake of others. I think about this in my own life, and I have to ask myself, am I willing to sacrifice like this if it meant people would come to faith in Christ? Am I willing to do that? I even have to ask are we willing, or even ask myself, what am I unwilling to give up for the sake of reaching people for Jesus? What is it? What's that thing that I'm holding on to so tightly that if, if Jesus called me to lay it down so that I could reach someone for Christ, I would in that moment really struggle to determine whether or not Christ was actually worth laying that thing down. I've told this story, I think, several times. Maybe you've heard it, and I apologize if you have. Maybe you haven't, and it's powerful to me. It's not my story. It's, it's a story of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Maybe you're familiar with her. doesn't matter your opinion of her. But she was, uh, she writes in a couple of different books. Um, she has a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key and another book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, where she talks about her testimony, her conversion. She was a professor of English and women's studies back in the 90s at Syracuse University, where her primary academic field was critical theory, specializing in queer theory. 
She was a lesbian and a leader in LGBTQ rights. This was, her, this was what she was all about. She was hostile to Jesus because she felt like the people who followed Jesus actually hated people like her. There was like no room for people like her. She viewed Christians as small-minded, uncharitable, and immoral because in her words, they ate meat, believed in corporal punishment, violated human environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. And so she was finding herself in this place, hostile to the gospel, hostile to the church, and she was actually working on a book, some research, to try to show the religious right and their hatred and their, their, all that anger and all that kind of stuff to debunk the myth of Christianity being a loving religion, whatever it might be. And it was specifically this event called Promise Keeper. Some of you might be familiar with that, that she heard happen in her community. She was writing about that. She wrote an op-ed in the paper, and it was a scathing review of all that kind of stuff. And she actually received a lot of hate mail back, but there was one invitation from a guy named Ken Smith to come have dinner. Ken Smith was a Christian. His wife, Floyd, was a Christian. And unexpectedly, she found herself over at their house. And what's so funny about this is she went thinking that they would make good research. I'm going to go and see how Christians really are. I'm going to go into enemy territory. And when she walked into their home, she said that nothing happened in the way that she expected. They were kind, welcoming, and hospitable. And one detail that, that may seem insignificant to you, but it just has been so, it just rang in my head. Because they knew she viewed eating meat as violent and using the air conditioning as bad for the economy and the environment, they served a vegetarian meal and used fans. How many of us in West OKC, in Mustang, Yukon, would have said, Oh, you think eating meat's violent? I'm going to make sure your steak is rare, right? Like, I hope you like blood with your meat. Just to prove a point, we do those things. Here's my point. Those people, Ken and Floyd Smith, who I don't know, meet them in heaven, had every right to eat meat and use their air conditioning. They could have done that. Not immoral, not sinful, but they willingly laid those things down and to a vegetarian they became like a vegetarian. And because of their hospitality and their sacrificial love, for over two years, Butterfield would go back and she would wrestle with the teachings of Scripture and she would talk about her own beliefs and she would talk about her sexuality and she was grappling with heaven and hell and eternity and all this stuff and she was losing who she used to be but gaining Jesus and it was a painful journey but ultimately she gave her life to Christ, loosening her grip on everything that made her her. But she received all that she could ever need in Jesus. Now hear me. I'm not asking you to give up meat. Some of y'all are like, dude, I can't. It's not even in my vocabulary, right? I am asking if you are willing to give up anything for the sake of others coming to Christ. And again, let me, let me just couch that in understanding. Like, I'm not asking you to disobey Jesus for the sake of bringing people to Jesus. Let's not be ridiculous about this. But here's the real question that we need to settle in our hearts do we believe that Jesus is enough? Do we believe that Jesus is worth sacrificing for? Can we trust him enough to willingly let go of all of the stuff that we think we need that makes us us, right? Because what I'm calling us to is fairly scary. 
I'm asking us to be willing to let go of a lot of things that make us feel safe and comfortable and secure. This past summer, Lydia was learning how to swim. She's my four-year-old daughter. She was learning how to swim. She'd put her little swim thing on the little, uh, I don't know the words, I'm going to move on. Uh, but she put that thing on. And, and what do kids do when they get in the pool and they're trying to learn how to swim and they're scared? They go to the wall. Why? Because they can hold on there. So she's holding onto the wall going around, and what she did not realize was that I had a firm grip on the buckle of the little uh, swim jumper thing that she had on, and she wasn't going anywhere. So she was thinking the whole time that she had the grip, and that's where safety is found, but what she didn't recognize is that she could explore the depths of the pool because her dad had a grip on her, and I wasn't going to let go. You know why that you can let go of certain things in your life? The reason you can sacrifice even when it feels uncomfortable and dangerous and scary is because Jesus has a firm grip on you. Paul could sacrifice his freedoms. He could sacrifice his authority. He could sacrifice his heritage. He could sacrifice his accomplishments and successes. Why? Because he had Jesus. Or better yet, Jesus had him. Oh, how I long for myself and for our church to grow in treasuring Jesus above all else, to want to live for Jesus and make Jesus known in our community to the point that we would gladly loosen our grip and give up something so that others may come to Christ and gain everything. And let me remind you, Christian, Jesus did this first. Jesus left heaven, took on flesh, took on limitations, experienced temptations and suffering and pain, and he willingly laid his life down so that others might live. So sacrificial living, what I'm calling us to, isn't some outlandish, weird, fundamentalist teaching for those weird, crazy Christians who take this too far. This is actually the way of Jesus for all of us to follow. And look at what happens in verse 5 as a result. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. People in those places were coming to Christ. They removed every impediment, any sort of stumbling block that would impede them from trusting Jesus. So here's the question. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we as individual people, how do we as Christians, how do we get to this place? Well, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus was asked this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the secret sauce. You ready? It's love. This is how we do this. How do we come a place that does what Paul and Timothy did in our context to see people come to Christ? Love. Why did Ken Smith and his wife show hospitality to Rosaria Butterfield and serve a vegetarian meal and turn off the air conditioner? Love. Listen. We could develop great evangelistic strategies and do events and throw parties hoping that non-Christian people would come to us and that's all well and good. We hope that non-Christian people would come and be a part of what we're doing and hear the gospel. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, we need to ask ourselves, are we pursuing people? Do we love God and do we love our neighbor? And let's remember the good news. We love God not to earn God's love, but because he first loves God. Us, First John tells us. Do you realize what that means, Christian? God loved us before we had anything to offer. 
God loved us while we were still in our sin. God loved us despite our filthy rags of self-righteousness. In fact, Paul says in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christian, let this stir your affections for your father. We did not have to perform our way into his love. We didn't have to, we didn't have to prove ourselves into the family. We came with our sin and brokenness and rebellion and God's response through Jesus was, I love you. There's a quote by a guy named Matt Smethers who, on Twitter. He put this and I just think it's beautiful. He says, the gospel changes heaven's courtroom proceedings from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. Isn't that beautiful? In his holiness, God justly can condemn us because of our sin, but instead he sent us his son who took our place so that the judge could not look at us and say guilty, but he could look at us and say son or daughter. And it's because of this lavish, over-the-top love of God that we now have the capacity to love others. There's a pastor and counselor, a guy named Ed Welch, Talking about loving people, he has this quote that I think is really beautiful. He says this, love strategizes how to do good. Take that, husbands, wives, take that, employ that into your marriage. Love strategizes how to do good. Is this not what Paul and Timothy were doing? Strategizing for the good of the Jews that they were going to minister to? Is this not what Ken Smith and his wife were doing? Strategizing for the good of Rosaria Butterfield? And is this not what we've been called to do? Because we have been loved with an inexhaustible love. We do not have to strategize to win arguments, to win debates, or to hold on to things that we prefer or make us feel safe. We can strategize how to do good to our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members. And the greatest good that we could possibly ever offer anybody is Christ himself. Let's stand. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Well Church Sermons. You can join us any Sunday at Canyon Ridge Intermediate School, 3600 South Sarah Road in Mustang, Oklahoma.